This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. As a podcast, we are also a YouTube channel. And if you go to YouTube, uh, just put in the words Spirit Matters Talk, and you'll find us. And I'm going to ask that you uh, push that little red button over there and uh, subscribe, because that is important to us. And for those people out there that have contributed to help keep us on the air, we want to thank you. Uh, we are very excited about our guest today. We have back on the show, Sattvi Bhagavati Saraswatiji. Uh, she has a remarkable story. And uh, uh, it, uh, she is a graduate of Stanford University, uh, wound up in Rishikesh, India, had a very profound experience, and has been there as a spiritual teacher uh, and student for uh, 25 years. And uh, her latest book, From Hollywood to the Himalayas, which I told her before is one of the great titles. Uh, it's a, it's a, a great book and very inspiring. And uh, we are thrilled and excited to have you back on the show. So thank you so very much for taking the time to come back on with us today. Oh, it's such a joy. I'm so happy to be here with you both. Thank you. Um, we should tell our listeners, we interviewed you for the show, uh, I think about three years ago, and that interviews in our archive. So we want to encourage all our listeners to go there and uh, hear uh, Sudvi part one, the, the prelude. And now uh, on this show, we want to focus on your memoir, From Hollywood to the Himalayas which is a really interesting story. I have to say, I haven't finished reading it, but I've already learned more about you than I knew before. For example, I didn't know you had a crush on Andrew Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> could you not have a crush on Andrew Harvey? I mean, could you, could you be a, a thinking, feeling <laughs> human of any gender? and listen to him speak about Ramakrishna and Rumi and loving God and not just want more and more and more of that. We can get two <laughs> interviews with Andrew right here in our archive. And uh, so we'll direct our listeners to that. Crush on Andrew aside, um, what drew, what got you to write this memoir? I've seen ah. Rishikesh, I've been to the ashram, I know you have a busy life, but you found time to write this. Tell us why. Yeah, Phil, it's, and you know, Crush on Andrew Harvey goes back 30 years. That was a, that was a, a beautiful moment in time when, my husband was taking classes at CIIS, getting his master's, and I had some time and started taking, it was before I had started my PhD program, and took a couple of classes there from Andrew. I was probably 22, 23, yeah, 22 at the time, and had no idea. I mean, it was absolutely the first I had ever heard of 
either Rumi or Ramakrishna or pretty much anything he spoke about, but I just adored him. So it, it, it planted a very beautiful seed. And then fast forward three years and we went to India, not connected to Andrew other than a trip to India that for me was a trip that I really didn't have any idea why I was going. Because although I had certainly loved the classes that I had taken, it didn't spark in me this sense of, oh, I have to go to India or I'm interested in India. And so when we went, for me, I really had this question of why am I going? This makes no sense. I had already started my PhD program by that time. I was actually a few years into it. I had done most of my coursework and was really on track. And the idea of taking a semester off of school and going to travel in India was not something that for me made any sense whatsoever. But I agreed to go and Rishikesh was the very first place we went. I had opened a 500 page Lonely Planet guidebook in Delhi. It was 1996, so you couldn't just ask Google where to go in India. But we had a Lonely Planet guidebook and I opened it and it said Rishikesh. And I was already a yoga student. I was already taking yoga in the Bay Area. I was a nature person. I loved mountains and rivers. And Rishikesh was a place that offered mountains, a river, lots of yoga classes. And best of all, it was quite close to Delhi. So it didn't require a major decision from the first few days in Delhi. And we thought, well, let us just go to Rishikesh. We'll stay there for some time. And then we will plan the rest of our India trip from Rishikesh. And we arrived in Rishikesh and put our bags down in the hotel. And I was drawn back to the river. I didn't know that Ganga was holy. I didn't know anything about Ganga. I didn't know this is the river worshipped as the mother goddess, worshipped as the bringer of life and liberation. I just knew it was a beautiful river. I was hot. I was tired. And I just wanted to put my feet in the river. So I go down to the banks of the river and I had standing there an experience that 25 years later, I still cannot describe semantically. It was an experience of awakening, opening, realization, having a, a veil pulled off of not only my eyes, but pulled off of every way of knowing that I had every way of understanding myself, of understanding the world, of understanding God. And in that moment, I knew. I knew that I was one 
one with God, the creator, one with all of creation. And I knew that I needed to stay there. And of course, I couldn't have articulated any of this. I was rendered completely nonverbal. All I could say as the tears streamed down my face was, oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. And that was pretty much all I could say for quite some time. But I knew that was where I needed to be. And it's a long story, but fast forward quickly through, I ended up finally at the Parmarth Nikathan Ashram, which is where I now live. And in my book, I, I share a lot of really very funny, very amazing stories of how I ended up there. For example, a story of literally hearing a voice as I walked through the ashram telling me, you must stay here. A story of literally getting my feet glued to the ground, to the pavement of the ashram when I tried to leave. So there were there were a lot of, of ways in which the universe, the divine grace made me know that I needed to be there. And so I stayed and it's been just the most extraordinary experience. And I, I've experienced both the power the transformational power of service. My guru, Pujaswami Chidanand Saraswatiji, is one of really the great embodiments of karma yoga, of yoga in action. Karma means action, of course, and mm-hmm. yoga means union, of course. And so karma yoga being not volunteering one Saturday morning a month, but literally making everything you do an experience of yoga. Right. If, making, if I could, if I could interrupt, I, I wanted course. to ask a question sure. uh, along these lines before I forget. And that is my understanding, uh, Safi, is that you are actually a sannyasi. And, yes. um, and, and my understanding, but explain it to our listeners and our viewers and to me, so I understand it clearly, that, that's a uh, quite an enormous commitment. And um, uh, at what, and uh, along the lines, like you're saying, this isn't just something you do on Saturday or Sunday afternoons uh, to perform some service or whatever. It, it's really um, a lifestyle, a life commitment. Uh, and it's usually not something that one can just jump into. The teacher usually has certain, uh, the master criteria for what one needs in order to uh, make that commitment. And so um, if you could explain to us a little bit about what it means to be a sannyasi and how that uh, decision to move in that direction and to commit to that came to you. Sure. So sannyasi is the, it's the Hindu equivalent, essentially. We don't have time here to go into the you know, the semantics of the term, the history of the term, but for our practical purposes, it literally 
is the equivalent of being a monk or a nun in the Hindu tradition. So we take vows of celibacy. We take vows of renunciation, vows of simplicity. And it's really a decision to live your life dedicated to the divine. And so for me, it's been an amazing experience. As we discussed, I was 25. I had been married. I certainly was not someone who grew up thinking that there was anything wrong with sex or anything to be avoided about that. I was not someone who was abstinent with regard to anything, food, alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it was, there was no sense of abstinence in my life. And nor was there an awareness that one should be practicing abstinence in any way, shape or form. And so for me to take those vows has been extraordinary. And I took them because it was so obvious to me from the beginning that that which I was given through this spiritual experience, that which I was given through the opportunity to serve, to be engaged in karma yoga, every minute being an expression of union, to be engaged in bhakti yoga, love for the divine, jnana yoga, this wisdom, that these paths that I was, that I was shown, the blessings that I was given were so deeply fulfilling to me that even though the idea of abstinence was never something that had ever occurred to me, suddenly I no longer found myself interested in any of that. So it wasn't for me a matter of discipline or restraint or having to push things out of my life that I really had wished were there. It was a very, very natural, very easy process. In fact, I used to say that I felt like God had come through with a dust buster, you know, the vacuum cleaners that go into the little, little corners <laughs> and, and had come through and had really dust bustered out of me every part that was not conducive mm -hmm. to living this life of spiritual seeker, spiritual teacher, spiritual leader in an ashram on the banks of Ganga. And whether it was a desire for bagels or a desire for sex or anything in between, it just got kind of vacuumed out of me. And there, there, wasn't, there wasn't any of that desire. And so taking these vows was really a very, a very natural progression for me. I had already been living like this for four years by the time my guru actually let me officially take the vows. So it doesn't sound like a torturous decision that you made, and because I've spoken to other uh, vow-taking monks and nuns for whom it was a difficult decision, but it, there was a naturalness to it. What was the adjustment like? Did anything about the sannyas, the post 
vow period of being a sannyasi, did anything surprise you? And I don't know where your marriage was in relation to uh, when you made that commitment, but what happened to that? How did your parents react? How did your friends react? All that. Sure. So each of those questions is a podcast episode in and of itself. <laughs> I will. A reality I'll, series. Yeah, exactly. I'll go through them as quickly as I can. I do go into the detail of all of that in my book, which, by the way, I've done for the very first time. And that's that's what I'm so excited about with the book, which. Oh, what, one thing I want to mention, I didn't when sure. I, I talked about the book. This book has been endorsed by the likes of Jane Goodall, Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, uh, and, and several others, uh, Jack Cornfield, uh, it, it, uh, on and on. So some people that, many of those people, most of those people we've had on the show, I think all of them, and uh, except for Jane Goodall. And uh, so oh, yeah. really wonderful folks in and of themselves. And they really, I mean, uh, promoted the book, pushed the book. So that, that speaks volumes, in my opinion. Well, thank you. Yes, it's been it's been a great blessing. And Phil, I will I will answer your question here, but just to mention that the sharing of all of these details, especially for one who has taken vows of renunciation, where the past is supposed to be over and done with as though it were an earlier life. For me, I've gone into the details, not only of what happened to my marriage or my parents, but also with regard to a lot of the ways that I had struggled in my youth, in my pre-coming to India youth, the challenges, the struggles, even the trauma that I had experienced, as well as the very well-intentioned, but very unskillful ways that I had been trying to deal with the pain and the trauma. And I, I shared all of this, these very, very intimate details for, for the first time publicly because it feels very important to me and this gets back also to your first question, it gets, it feels very important to me that people understand I wasn't cut from some different cloth. I didn't come out of the womb enlightened. I'm not some different special species upon whom grace has showered her blessings in a way that is qualitatively different than you. And what compelled me to spend the hundreds of hours to actually write the book is for people to understand whatever you've been through, whatever challenges, difficulties, trauma, experiences you've been through, whatever ways you've lived that have been out of alignment with your highest truth, none of that renders you unworthy or undeserving or disqualified from grace, from that experience of spiritual awakening, that experience of truth, that experience of bliss. 
And in order to really help people know that in a way that's honest and authentic and believable, I had to share my story in the the fullness of the details. So it is all there in the book for the purpose of a quick podcast. Let's just Mm -hmm. say that my marriage ended. I originally had envisioned because my husband had been on a spiritual path. He had been looking for a guru. And so I had really envisioned that we would live together at the ashram, that he would be thrilled that I had found this place that a voice had told me to stay there, that I had found us at the feet of one of India's most revered saints, revered enlightened masters. But unfortunately, that was not what the divine plan was. It was not our karmic package for it to work out that way. And so the marriage did end. My parents in the beginning took it not very well, as you can imagine, a 25-year-old Jewish young woman in the midst of getting a PhD suddenly announces that she's joining an ashram and she's going to move to the banks of the sacred Ganga River to the lap of the Himalayas in India. It was not something that they said, oh, okay, honey, no problem. You know, should we help you pack? (laughs) But the truth is very persuasive. And this is what I've seen for 25 years. The truth is a magnet. And when you live it, not when you try to shove it down people's throats, but when you simply live it, it draws people. And people ultimately are are pulled by truth. People who are open at least a little bit. Certainly there are some who aren't drawn, but those who are open at least a little bit, and my parents certainly are open a lot, it really drew them. And they, they really came to understand and then embrace and be so deeply proud of the choice that I made. So it was definitely difficult in the beginning, but it's been just such a, a beautiful and blessed 25 years of how, how they have really not just come around in terms of accepting my choice, but how my choice has rippled into their lives. But it took time and it took a lot of patience and it took not trying to shove it down their throats, not trying to convince them, not better than vowing them, but simply living, living my truth with as much love and compassion for them as possible. And so, you know, pre-sanyas days, if it meant that my mom wanted me in a skirt instead of in a sari, okay. And, you know, if it meant that they really, really wanted to go out to dinner, okay. And, you know, little small things that ordinarily I wouldn't have done, but that felt very important 
to, especially my mom, as just sort of symbols of the fact that I still was there with them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, it's been it's been quite a journey. You asked friends. So friends, friends mostly thought that I was certainly a little bit off my rocker, um, that I was not necessarily making the right decision. You know, I had people really very well-meaning say, it sounds great. Finish your degree first, work for a year or two, get yourself settled. And then you want to take a couple of years off, you know, a spiritual Peace Corps type of thing. No problem. But at least first get yourself settled. And now, though, years later, but not even necessarily taking this long, it started a lot earlier. So many of them have just been so touched inspired by and really just in love with the decision that I made, the the place I've had friends come in visit, friends come to satsang programs when I'm in town. They have come and taken Puja Swamiji's blessings and have gotten very close to him. So it takes a little while for people to to see the truth when it isn't wrapped up and packaged the way that we always think truth and happiness is supposed to be packaged. But eventually when, when you open up the box, when you get it open, you realize, oh yeah, there it is. And once they see it, they're very drawn to it. Mm -hmm. I think we have time for a few more questions. I want to ask you, uh, you, you have, when you, you go to India, you're in Rishikesh, you have this profound experience. You seek out a teacher, you find a teacher, uh, and you are a student, a disciple. Uh, are you now both a teacher and a student? You still have your guru, but do you have people that you teach? And what has that transition been like for you, having both? Beautiful. So my, well, let's start on the external. On the external Absolutely. Yes, I am still very much a student, very much a devotee, very much a disciple. And yes, I am very much a teacher. I lead satsang every evening in Rishikesh, which is a a beautiful, precious time of spiritual questions and answers. People ask questions and answers flow through me. I do a lot of spiritual teaching. I teach meditation and I travel all over the world giving spiritual teachings. And yet, so that's the external. On the internal level, I feel like a student, a devotee, a disciple. I do not feel like a teacher. The teaching for me on a felt sense experience is that I am simply a vehicle. I'm a vessel through which teachings come and they, by God's grace, benefit people. But my experience 
feels like they come through me rather than from me. And so as I teach, as I give answers to questions in satsang, it's actually the most beautiful experience. It feels like open-eyed, open-mouthed meditation because that flow of wisdom, of knowledge, of awareness is coming through me. And I feel very much like the first beneficiary of that. And then it overflows through me onto the world around. And yeah, I don't feel any any sense at all of a discrepancy between being the student and the teacher. It all feels like both paths are simply paths of emptying oneself. The emptier I can become of ignorance, of stuckness, of false identities, the more I can absorb from my guru and his blessings, and also the more of a clear channel I can be for wisdom of the universe to flow through me for others. Sweet, beautiful. Um, I've been to the ashram, I've been to the evening RT with you and Puja Swami, and I've seen um, that he, I don't know when this happened, but at, at a certain point he empowered you <clears throat> to uh, be a, uh, in a sense, a, a public face of the lineage and the ashram. And um, so you have a prominent role and in all the seva activities that you and the ashram are involved in, which I'd like you to say some more about before we finish, um, you have a lead role. So one of my questions is, how did uh, the people, not just in the ashram or Rishikesh, but the Indian people in general, um, how do they respond to you as a woman and as a uh, someone not born into the Hindu tradition as an American? Uh, you have, uh, you've been empowered to an unusual degree given that you're an American woman. How has that been? Yes, that has been extraordinary. And the world of... Indian, Hindu, religion, spirituality, especially the tradition of sannyas, the real traditional lineage of the Dharma in India. There are very, very few women, and especially very, very few women who, as you very rightly say, are public faces and are pushed into the public face by the male leader. So yes, it's been really extraordinary. It has not been easy on any level. Puja Swamiji, my guru, is very, very committed to, to the divine Shakti, to that presence of the mother goddess, and to 
he, he's a, a worshiper of the mother goddess in his own personal temple. The main deity is the mother goddess. He's a, so he's a, a personal devotee of the goddess. And so much of the humanitarian work is focused around women and girls and whether it's schools and vocational training programs and empowerment programs and upliftment programs, whether it's healthcare programs, whether it's water sanitation and hygiene programs, building building toilets, getting toilets in people's homes, bringing clean water, ending stigma around menstruation, bringing in menstrual hygiene programs. We've been really, really committed to that aspect of the, the very physical embodiment of the mother goddess in the form of women. So yes, he has absolutely pushed me forward. He started doing that about 15 years ago and literally just one night we were having satsang. He was leading it as he always did. And he literally just in the middle of satsang, someone had asked a question and he says, Sadviji. And he closes his eyes and he goes into meditation and it's, it's a long story that's also in the <laughs> book, but he, he puts me in this very, very uncomfortable, difficult kind of panic situation of having to step up to the moment. And that was when I realized, oh, it's not about what you know. It's about how much you can get out of the way and let the wisdom of the universe flow. But, you know, Phil, you're right. It has not been easy at all being a woman, being someone from the West. There's absolutely been, as you can imagine, um, discontent. And yet, again, the truth is a magnet. And slowly as the years have gone by and as the role has solidified and crystallized and grown and expanded, not just in India, but so much around the world, people have, I think, on the one hand, I think they've just gotten used to it. And I think on the other hand, they've actually really been drawn to it and very appreciative of it in a way that maybe helped them expand, you know, maybe by having to accept, embrace, appreciate, respect a white woman in the role of a teacher and leader of the Dharma in saffron robes, having to do that and being able to do that has been, I think, also an opportunity for a lot of people's own spiritual and emotional and cognitive development of having to expand their own way of seeing and their own way of understanding. If I can add something to that, because in my all my research, all the gurus who came to the West empowered women and Westerners 
to represent their lineages, and that and they all met with resistance from traditionalists. But in the end, it kind of brings out the universality of the Dharmic teachings. Yes. Doesn't it? Yes, of course. Of course. And and you know, we we run, for example, the International Yoga Festival every year, which being able to do that is just one of one of my great joys and one of the great blessings of the service activities that we do. And we've got thousands of people who come from all over the world. We usually have people from right around a hundred different countries. Wow. And it it really shows, especially since these days you can learn yoga on pretty much any corner of any city anywhere in the world. The fact that more and more of them are being drawn quite physically to sit on airplanes and come to India to learn makes you realize how universal the Dharma is, how applicable it is, how transformative it is for people, and that it is so much more than just learning postures or exercises or what you would learn at the yoga studio on your corner. So people are really drawn there. And if you see their faces sitting on the banks of Ganga, performing the arti, doing the fire ceremonies, the yagnas, coming to satsang, meditating, chanting, it makes you re-realize that the dharma does not have any borders or boundaries. When we say sanatan, eternal, well, eternal is not only in time, it's in space as well. And so not only is there no beginning or end, but there's no wall that says, well, it applies to these people, but not these people. And it's so beautiful to, to witness that all the time. I mean, the week of the yoga festival, of course, but even the other 51 weeks a year, the banks of Ganga at the ashram are just full of people of every color, of every race, of every religion, touching and experiencing that, that truth within themselves, which of course isn't a Hindu truth. It's just a capital T truth that is there and available and accessible for all. Universal, thank you so very much. Uh, the book again, From Hollywood to the Himalayas. Uh, and uh, it, it's an absolute pleasure. Obviously, living in your Dharma, uh, you're radiating that. Uh, I, 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 we have many guests that look happy with what they're doing, but you certainly seem to be beaming with uh, an inner happiness, and I find that very inspiring. Hold up the book, but we only got PDF. <laughs> yeah. so have, you know, but you can't forget the title from Hollywood to the Himalayas. It's a great title, as mm -hmm. I said. It actually, I'm, I'm, it, it actually doesn't have from in it. Okay. They decided it's actually just Hollywood to the Himalayas. Even better. Even better. What do I know about titles, right? So um, I want to compliment you on being uh, honest and open and candid about your own uh, pre-Sanyasi life. Mm -hmm. um, because... Um, 
I, I agree with you that it's a service to have uh, talked about the things you did, and you know, you talk about having been bulimic and uh, sexual abuse and all kinds of things that a lot of people listening will have experienced or other sort of traumas, and so um, they could take inspiration that they too can heal and they, they don't have to be a sannyasi to do so, as, as, I'm, as I'm sure you point out in the book, and that healing is possible and transformation is possible. And uh, so folks, uh, whenever you're hearing this, the book will already have been published. We encourage you to read it. And um, Sadvi, thanks for being with us. And I hope um, things, we're recording this in early July of 2021. India is in the midst of uh, a terrible COVID crisis and you're in California because of that. I hope um, we both get to return and I see you in Rishikesh in February when I'm supposed to be there and I'll see you on at Arati one evening. Wonderful, wonderful, Phil, it's been just so beautiful to be together and yes the book is officially out in stores on august 3rd so i will so deeply look forward to everyone's feedback and everyone's thoughts because of course of course the core teaching is you don't have to be on the banks of ganga you don't have to be a sannyasi that healing and that transformation and that opening an awakening is possible for all. So I am very excited to, by God's grace, have people experience that for themselves. And I look so forward to seeing you in California before I head back. I've got a book tour and then I'll head back after the book tour. But to seeing you on the banks of Ganga back in February as well. And the banks of the Pacific before that. Yes, yes, again yes. For being with thank us. You, thank you so much. I'm going to ask you for last words, but you delivered them without even being asked. And we appreciate it. So um, take good care and good luck with the book tour. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Love to you.